Father, we give you praise tonight. We quiet our hearts before you. We pray that you would open our ears to hear, open our eyes to see, open our hearts to receive, open our minds to understand. Give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of you. Give us clarity, drive out confusion. Give us strength, drive out weakness. Give us grace. We thank you for it in Jesus' precious, holy, mighty name. Amen. Amen. So we talked last night about discovering your purpose, the why you are, and we said that if you want to know who you are, you first must discover why you are. And what we discovered in session one concerning your purpose is that your purpose is not something functional. That is the reason God put you on this planet is not to fulfill a function. It is not to fulfill a vocation. It is not to make to achieve something. That is not your purpose. Your purpose, we said, is relational. Why? Because we identified God as a relational being rather than as a functional being. Meaning, at the core of his being, God is not a taskmaster, God is not a king, God is not a lord. At the core of his being, he is first and foremost a father. Now, if you remember, we just did the six-part series on the kingdom of God that led us into the retreat. And the interesting thing is that if you take the kingdom apart from the father, the kingdom of God becomes an oppressive power structure. But when you add the father into it and add to that our identity as his sons and daughters and now realize that we're called into the kingdom, we realize that we're not called into the kingdom as subjects, but as sons and as daughters. And the difference is that the function of sons and daughters in a kingdom is to share the authority of the king. That is, the function of sons and daughters in the kingdom is to reign with the father. Now, Jesus was the only begotten son of God. He is the only non-adopted son of God. And he was with the Father in eternity. He was the agent of creation. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. And we find in Scripture that Jesus occupies two places in relation to the Father. First, he is at the right hand of the Father. And that image occurs over and over again, both in the Old Testament and in the New. Psalm chapter 110, verse 1 says, Then the Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. And over again throughout the New Testament, we see him sitting at the right hand of the Father. But secondly, uh, we see him in John 1, I believe it's uh, verse, uh, okay, I can't remember the verse, but in John chapter 1, he's resting in the bosom of the Father. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him or he has made him known. And so Jesus occupies two places in relation to the Father. First, he is at the right hand of the Father. Second, he is in the bosom of the Father. The bosom of the Father is the place where he receives eternally the Father's love. The right hand of the Father is the place wherein he is invested with the Father's authority. And the scriptures call us both to reside in the bosom of the Father and to reside at the right hand of the Father with with Jesus, okay? I'm sorry, I'm moving too fast. Let me slow down a little bit. (laughs) In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul prays this prayer. He says, for this reason, I bow my knee to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and I pray that he would give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of you so that the eyes of your understanding would be enlightened. And he prays that our eyes would be enlightened so that we could see three things. Number one, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the beloved. Number two, the, I forgot. It had to, the middle one, I keep, I keep miss, I keep forgetting the middle one. It has to do with, uh, somebody look it up for me, please. 
But the last one is the exceeding greatness of his power towards us who believe. It's Ephesians 1.14 and following. So he says, first and foremost, he wants God to open our eyes so that we could see the riches of his glorious inheritance in the beloved. And the riches of his glorious inheritance is the inherent God-likeness that each of his children possesses. See, when I was a little boy, before my voice changed, I would pick up the phone, the phone would ring at home, and I'd go, hello? And, and people would say, hi, Diane, how you doing? And I would say, oh, no, no, this is Benjamin. This is, no, Diane's my mom. This is Benjamin. Say, like, oh, Benjamin, you sound just like your mother. Don't ever tell a little boy he sounds just like his mother. That's so mean. But then my voice changed, and I remember the day I answered the phone. I said, hello? And the person on the other end said, hey, Peter, how you doing? I said, yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> the funny thing is that I did not sound like my father to me. I sounded like my father to others. I did not realize how much like my father I was. Matter of fact, I'm still realizing how much like my father I am. It's interesting. I heard my brother Charles up here singing. I walked by, and I thought my dad was up there singing for a second. And then I was like, oh, wait, that's Charles. Because I was like, man, dad's voice done got good. Like, dad, dad was getting, dad's been, he's been practicing. And then I was like, oh, that's Charles. That's my brother. Right? You don't know how much like the father you are. Other people can see it. It's funny. And that happened to me over and over again as I was growing up. Other people would tell me, man, you sound just like your father. But I couldn't hear it. It's like that with us as believers in Jesus Christ. You don't realize how much like your father in heaven you are. And so Paul prayed that God would give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation so that we could see the riches of his glorious inheritance in the beloved, which is the inherent God-likeness that is in us through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. What's the second one, Emily? The hope of his calling. That's, that's, actually, that's the first one, isn't it? The hope of his calling and then the riches of his glorious inheritance in the beloved. The hope of his calling is the end of the matter. That is, if you, if you look at your life right now, you may only see trials and tribulations and sorrows. But the hope of his calling means that right now God is preparing you for something greater. The thing we must understand is that the favor of the Lord is not circumstantial. It is providential. If you get that, it will set you free from a lot of stuff. The favor of the Lord is not circumstantial. The favor of the Lord is not dependent upon whether or not you get an upgrade to business class. Right? Because most of us, we see the favor of the Lord in episodic terms. Right? It's like, it's, we just think episodically. I need the favor of God to manifest in a specific way right now, and that way I know that God loves me. Don't ever put the Lord to the test that way. Lord, if you really love me, do this. What you don't realize is that the favor of the Lord is providential, which means that God can allow you to walk through a bunch of crap for decades to set you up for a greater good and a greater manifestation of his favor in latter years. And the favor that God is providentially setting you up for is not just for you, but it's for a lot of folks. Think about it. If you have experienced the love of God through Jesus Christ, if you could stop and think of all of the people that were involved in that. Like if you've experienced the love of Christ, God did not just like blast you from heaven on an island by yourself. There were people that the love of Christ flowed into your life through. Imagine this. For thousands of years, God has been aligning circumstances, events, persons, and relationships to set you up for the moment when you experience the love of Christ. 
to make sure that you were in the right place at the right time and the right people were in the right place at the right time so that the love of God could flow through that. that and watch, not the person that the love of God flowed into your life through, there was somebody there that the love of God flowed into their life and somebody there for them and somebody there for them. And it goes back thousands of years. Do you realize that God has spent thousands of years positioning situations and events to set you up to get blasted by the love of Christ? How crazy is that? How provident? And some folks had to walk through hell to set you up to walk into heaven so that you could enter into the kingdom. Some folks had to go through hell to open the gate for you so that you can enter into the kingdom of heaven. How powerful is that? And so that means that when you walk through trouble and when you walk through trials and tribulations, you should see it as God providentially setting you up not only to receive his favor, but so that his favor can flow through you into somebody else's life. The favor of God is not circumstantial, it's providential. All right. So last night we talked about your purpose, and we said that your purpose is not functional, it's relational. God is your father, and therefore your purpose is to be the object of his love. We talked about the fact that you don't focus on you, you focus on him, and if you focus on him, you begin to see yourself as a reflection in his eyes, and that's when you discover your identity, which is what we talked about this morning. So your purpose is why you are, your identity is who you are, and both your purpose and identity are relational phenomena, not functional phenomena. Neither your purpose nor your identity depend upon what you do. They're only dependent upon who you are related to. Matter of fact, I heard Mururi say this morning after the second session, I thought it was incredibly profound. He talked about the fact that in the Bible, identity is genealogical. You're always identified by who your father is. This, who is this person? He's the son of this person. He's the son of that person. He's the son of this person. Your genealogy is what determines your identity so that when God positions himself as our father, he says, your genealogy has one. <laughs> your, your gene- it's only one level. God doesn't have no grandchildren. He doesn't have any great grand. He only has children, the children of God. That is your identity. That is your genealogical identity, descendants of God. How powerful is that? Give Mududi a high five for that. Where's Mududi at? There he is. Uh, That boy good. That boy good. (laughs) That boy got talent. So your purpose and identity are relational realities rather than functional realities. Tonight we're talking about your nature, and tomorrow morning we're talking about your mission, which are functional realities. Oh, you thought you were going to get off the hook and never have to function. Oh, no, we're trying to function. (laughs) You still got to function. But first, we've got to establish our purpose and identity. And once you establish your purpose and your identity, now we can discover our nature. Because if you start with your nature, but your purpose and identity are in the wrong place, your nature is going to be in the wrong place. You see, your nature is that which drives you. It's that which motivates you. It is the energy source behind your actions, intentions. Your your inclinations and impulses are keys to your nature. The problem is if you don't start with eyes that are focused on God the Father and with a heart 
of sonship. You're going to operate out of the wrong nature. Your inclinations and impulses are going to lead you down a pathway straight to hell. And you'll spend the rest of your life trying to shape your inclinations and impulses. But if you start with a heart and mind that's focused on God, embracing your identity as as his sons and daughters, and a life that's focused on living that out, to fulfill your purpose, you have to simply focus your life on growing into deeper intimacy with God. Active recipients of his love every day. My number one priority, receive God's love. My number two priority, return his love. Reciprocate it. it. Now you're actually living in the kingdom, which is the spirit-filled life. And all of a sudden, out of that life come a series of inclinations and impulses that drive you in a direction that you never would have been driven on your own. That propel you into a realm in which you discover things about yourself that you never knew. All of a sudden, you discover your nature. You discover that there are things that are now natural to you. You see, in order for the right things to be natural to you, you must discover the fact that you are a supernatural being. Otherwise, what's natural to you? Well, the works of the flesh are evident. But when you're walking in the Spirit, what becomes natural to you? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, kindness, Long-suffering, self-control. What is natural to you is what is natural to God. And what we call supernatural, God calls natural. If supernatural healing, when people get healed of sicknesses and diseases, we call that supernatural. God calls that normal. Yeah, in my presence, people just kind of get better. What does God have to do to heal? Just walk in the room. Just, just normal. And so when we focus our hearts and minds on walking with Jesus, you see, one of the main problems is we don't spend any time growing into a deeper place of intimacy with God, so we're outside of our purpose. We're completely separated from our identity. And now when it comes to, we're focused on our nature. And I'm simply trying to find my gifts And we have all this stuff in the body of Christ like, discover your spiritual gifts. Take this spiritual gifts test and take that test to find out, do you have this gift? And now practice the gifts. And you got to practice your gifts and figure out what your gifts are wrong. That's a completely functional way of living your Christian life. I had a a Presbyterian friend in seminary, Presbyterian guy. And uh, in his Presbyterian church, people started getting healed. And the Holy Spirit started falling and people started speaking in tongues, all kinds of what we call Pentecostal stuff. Actually, it's not Pentecostal, it's just the Bible. (laughs) And so I I, I wanted to talk to this guy. I was so excited, a Presbyterian Pentecostal. No, just a Christian. And I sat with him. I said, so tell me, what, what happened? He goes, well, this lady in my church had cancer, and in one of the services, the Lord told me to lay hands on her, and I did, and... Well, she kind of was better from that moment on. She went to the doctor, and the cancer was gone. He's like, what? That's awesome. It's like, yeah, you know. And I said, so, I mean, how did that happen? I mean, how'd you, how'd you get there? I mean, how did that happen? He goes, what do you mean? I said, did you go to a conference and get blasted by the glory? I said, no. He, he said, no. I said, did you get a high-level prophet or apostle to lay hands on you and impart the anointing? He said, no. 
I said, so what, what happened? He goes, um, when you spend all of your time worshiping and praying, it kind of happens naturally. All of a sudden, I begin to realize that every time I've seen miracles, signs, wonders, it was never my idea. Yeah. Ever. Like, it was never me going, hey, God, I got a great idea. Why don't you heal this person? It was always God saying, Benjamin, I want to heal this person. Will you go over there and pray for them? And a lot of times, I even resisted. Mm-mm, Lord, mm-mm, I'm, I'm too scared. Because it's, it's in his nature, and if you walk with him, you begin to discover things that are in your nature. Because, listen, remember, when you become an adopted child of God, he gives you his nature. Yeah. His nature comes to live on the inside of you by the Holy Spirit. Yeah. And all of a sudden, what is natural to God becomes natural to you. Now, this is what I want you to understand. All of this, it's all in the garden, remember? It's all in the garden. By the way, let me say this. For those of you who have been trying to follow the outline, quote-unquote, it's not an outline. I just put four random ideas in each section. Oh, because some of you are expecting this is 25%, this is 25%, this is 25%, this is what, it's not going to happen, okay? Matter of fact, some, some of the stuff in the booklet, I don't even get to in that session, okay? So just give it up. Don't, don't, you know. I just thought I'd set you free so you're not waiting for me to go to the next point. Because I haven't even looked at that. I don't even know what that's, what's, what's in there. So I'm not even following that. Okay, now I'm free. It's all in the garden. <laughs> yeah, I mentioned that this morning, but, I, but actually that's through this whole thing. It's all about the garden. Now what happens in the garden is we see the definition of humanity. I want to ask you a question. Who was the most fully human human being to ever walk planet Earth? Jesus. I know we're so used to thinking of him as God, but the fact of the matter is Jesus is 100% God and 100% man. 100% man, why? Because what does it mean to be 100% human? It means to have a perfect relationship with God and to be without sin. That's what Adam and Eve were. Sin messed up their humanity. We started defining humanity according to sin. You've defined yourself forever according to your brokenness. Jesus is fully human. And in his ascension into into the heavens to sit at the right hand of God, he did not do away with his humanity. Do you realize that right now, sitting at the right hand of God is a man, a human being, fully human, 100% human, 100% divine. In our minds and hearts, we think that humanity and divinity are polar opposites. All the way back to Kierkegaard, Soren Kierkegaard talked about the infinite qualitative distinction between God and man. In Kierkegaard's philosophy, God and man are polar opposites. Whatever we are, God is the opposite. In a sense, that's true. When we're fallen and in sin, yes, God says, my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are my ways your ways. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my thoughts higher than your thoughts and my ways than your ways. But then he says, but I'm going to fix that. As the rain comes down from heaven 
and does not return until it replenishes the earth, providing seed for the sower and bread for the eater. So is my word, which proceeds from my mouth. It does what the rain does. The heavens are higher than the earth, which means the clouds are above the earth. My word, my ways are above your ways. My thoughts are above your thoughts. But that's okay. The rain comes down from heaven and bridges the gap between the height of the heavens and the depths of the earth. God says, my word comes from from my mouth like the rain. And it bridges the gap between my ways and your ways, between my thoughts and your thoughts. And it does not return to me void, but it accomplishes that for which I send it. And what does he send his word to do? So that when we receive his word, we can say, your thoughts are now my thoughts. And when we walk in obedience to his word, we can say, your ways are now my ways. So that what is natural to God becomes natural to us. We're going somewhere. So there's this guy named Saul, not Saul of Tarsus, but Saul back in 1 Samuel chapters 9 and 10 and following. He was the first king of Israel. He was tall, dark, and handsome. I don't know if he was dark, but yeah, I threw that in there. It just made sense. <laughs> he was definitely tall and handsome. But he was shy. Yeah. If you want to talk about his nature, he didn't like being in public. He didn't see himself as a leader because he was too scared to be seen in public. But God had a plan for this man, and the plan that God had for this man unfolded because his father lost his donkeys. And so his father says, take a servant, go look for the donkeys. He and the servant went out and searched for the donkeys, and they were gone for days. They were just about to give up the search. They were running out of food and money. And just as they're about to return home, the servant said, wait a minute, I heard there's a seer in the next city over here. A seer, one who sees. It was another name for a prophet. Prophets were called seers because they saw things in the spirit. Saul says, we don't have any money to give the, the prophet an offering. And his servant said, I got, I got a coin right here. I got this coin right here. He said, all right, let's go see the prophet. When they approached the prophet, Samuel, the Lord had already spoken to Samuel and said, you're going to meet a guy tomorrow named Saul, and he's the guy I've chosen to be king of Israel. So as they approached the gate, Saul says, he meets Samuel. He says, excuse me, have you seen the seer? Can you tell me where the seer is? And Samuel goes, hi, I'm the seer. Well, he doesn't say it that way, but you know. He says, by the way, I knew you were coming. Oh, about your dad's donkeys, your dad's already found the donkeys. He's not worried about the donkeys anymore. Now he's worried about you. But let me tell you why we're meeting. We're meeting because God has a plan for your life, and he's going to make you king of Israel. And then this is what Samuel says. When you leave me, he says, there's a number of signs that are going to happen. But the last of those signs is as you're walking down the hill, there's going to be a group of prophets coming down the hill with the timbrel and a harp, and they're going to be worshiping and prophesying. And when you meet that prophetic gathering, the Spirit of God is also going to come upon you, and you're going to prophesy. And then listen to what Samuel says. And in that day, this is 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 17, I think it is. I'm going to read it to you because I'm probably going to mess it up. My mind isn't working today. Yeah, see, I I was going to give you the complete wrong verse. All right, I had it open, I swear. There it is, verse 7. Once these signs are fulfilled, listen to this, do whatever your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Listen to what Samuel says. Once the Holy Spirit comes on you, 
And he told him, oh, by the way, you're going to become another man. Once the Holy Spirit comes on you in that way, do whatever you want. Whatever comes to your hand to do, do that. Translation. When you get filled with the Holy Spirit, overwhelmed by the Holy Spirit, you're going to get a new nature. And once that new nature transpires on the inside of you, do whatever you want. Whatever comes to your mind to do it, do that. Let me tell you what our goal is. Our objective is to be so focused on God that we get so filled up with God that we're able to safely act out our inclinations and impulses because God is with us that to, to that degree. Now, let's fast forward a little further. Saul goes into the city. This hadn't happened yet. He goes into the city. Samuel had a, a banquet set up for him, and at the banquet, he's going to introduce the new king of Israel, right? And when it came time to introduce him, he was gone. They're like, where's he at? You know where they found him? They found him hiding in the luggage. This is the, king of, this is the new king of Israel. He was so shy and so afraid that he's hiding in the luggage. You see, a lot of people get in their hearts and minds, God can only use me in these ways because I'm afraid of this and I'm afraid of that and I don't do this well. And as, as if your natural inclinations are the restrictions that God responds. As if God, he, he uses as his personal boundaries your, your natural inclinations, your natural shortcomings. Moses had a stuttering problem. God said, I don't care. Who gave man his mouth? You hear what God is saying? He's saying, what you think are your weaknesses? God says, I use the weak things of the world to confound the strong. The things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no flesh might glory in my presence. God is not bound by your natural nature. He has a supernatural nature for you that supersedes what you think you are capable of in the natural. And so oftentimes we get it in our hearts and minds. Well, I'm shy, so I can't do this. Or, well, I'm this, so I can't do that. Well, I'm an introvert, so I, you know, well, I'm an extrovert. Well, I'm this. Do you realize that God could call you to something that completely contradicts everything that you feel in your nature is you? And when he does, he's simply saying, I've got a new nature for you, a new you, an anointed you, a spirit-filled you. The spirit-filled you is the real you. And if you haven't met the spirit-filled you yet, you haven't met you. The anointed you can do stuff that you could not believe Stuff that you never thought you would do. When the Holy Spirit comes on you, you'll find yourself doing it. Stuff that you never thought, places where you never thought. You know, one, one great illustration is, um, I remember when I was a Bible college student, I would hear all these stories about people casting out demons. And it just sounded so scary to me. I thought, I could never do that. I would freak out if I saw a demon-possessed person. And then I did see a demon-possessed person. And I did freak out. I went. <laughs> I thought she was demon-possessed, and so I came up alongside her. I whispered in her ear. I said, devil, you're a liar. And she turned to me and said, I am not a liar. And I went. 
I just backed on out of the room. I grabbed my buddy Tony. I was like, I need to speak to you outside, bro. I said, we're in over our heads. We need to call Reverend Fears and let him come down here and, and take care of this situation. And he goes, no, we're going to pray this through. I said, all right, bro, I got your back. Way back. <laughs> Tony and I went in, we started to pray. And guess what happened? The moment we started to pray, something rose up on the inside of us. It's called the boldness of the Holy Spirit. When you actually take a step into the kingdom and begin to deal with something that you didn't think you had the stuff to deal with, all of a sudden you discover that you couldn't deal with it by your own power. You were right to realize that you couldn't deal with it by your own power, but in the kingdom you don't have to deal with anything by your own power. You deal with it by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's all in the garden. I know that wasn't about the garden. I'm going back to the garden. That was, an in, that was a foreshadowing. So God says, let us make man in our own image and in our likeness and let him have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air. First, his purpose and identity. Let's make him in our own image and in our, our likeness. Translation, let's make him our son and make him the object of our love. His purpose will be to be in fellowship with us forever. And his identity will be son. But then next comes his nature and his mission. And let's let him have dominion. His nature is dominion. And the definition of dominion is creative responsibility for the created order. Let him have dominion, meaning we're going to set him over everything in this world. And his job will be to take creative responsibility for the created, for the created order. He's going to look around and go, how can we make this better? He's going to see problems and say, how can we fix this problem? And when he says, let him have dominion, along with that task of taking dominion, comes a constellation of gifts, of passions, inclinations, and impulses that drive him towards making a difference in the world. You see, that thing on the inside of you that wants to make a difference in the world, it actually comes from God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You just got to put it in the proper place. That thing comes from God, it can also become an idol. It becomes an idol when it takes the place of God. And that's why you got to come back to your purpose and your identity. But when your purpose and your identity are in place, you have this constellation of gifts, passions, inclinations, and impulses that compel you to make a difference in the world, that propel you towards something called your destiny. And that impulse is from God. That thing on the inside of you that says, I must make a difference. I've got to do something significant. My life has to count. Surely God's put something on the inside of me that can make a difference, not just for me, but for the world. God's put that on the inside of you. It's called dominion. And so God brings man and woman together, and then he blesses them and says, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it and take dominion. 
over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air. Dominion, the definition of dominion is not domination. When he said take dominion, he did not say go dominate everything, extract everything from it that you possibly can and use it for your own ends. That's what we do in our fallen state. That's not what God does. And man's nature should reflect God's nature. When he says take dominion, he says take creative responsibility. Now, what he has given to the man and to the woman and to every man and to every woman from that day forward is a unique constellation of gifts, passions, inclinations, and impulses. You, right where you sit, each and every one of you in this room right now, you have a unique constellation of gifts, of passions, inclinations, and impulses that if you focus in the right direction will propel you to make a difference in the world that nobody else can make but you. The problem, first of all, is there's a number of misconceptions. And the first misconception is the idea of fulfilling your potential. How many have heard this? you got to fulfill your potential. You need to take the concept of potential and throw it out the window. Nobody can fulfill your potential. You have way too much potential. Everybody in this room has more potential than you could ever fulfill in a lifetime. Think about it. Let's take Phil. Phil is a master designer, right? He's also a tremendous musician, okay? He's also a tremendous photographer, okay? He also has, he also has an impeccable sense of hipster style. And even better, he married up, so, you know. <laughs> now, just the stuff that I just identified, and those are the gifts that we've identified. Can Phil, if Phil focused on being a photographer, there's this whole world of potential that Phil would fulfill. Yeah. But he couldn't fulfill all of that and simultaneously fulfill all of his design potential. But in neither could he fulfill all of that and simultaneously fulfill all of his musical potential. And there's probably seven or eight other gifts that, had, that Phil could actually be excellent in. He can't fulfill all of his potential. And matter of fact, you shouldn't try to fulfill all of your potential. And so God gives us ways of prioritizing and focusing our gifts so that we focus on the ones that are of greatest kingdom benefit. Jesus didn't fulfill his potential, by the way, on earth. Think about it. The dude could heal the sick. He could have raised up an army that drove Rome out easily. I mean, the guy can raise the dead. He could have raised up an army with just his twelve. Let's go to war. They all get killed. Just get up, get up, get up, raise them up. 
Go at them again. They all get killed, just raise them up from the dead again. Get their arms chopped off, just puts them back on. We run out of food, just give me a cracker, multiply it, bam, feed the whole army. He had the potential to raise up an army that took over the world, but he didn't fulfill it. What if he'd have wrote books? If Jesus would have wrote books, game over. So I'm reading the epistles of Paul. Psh, I'm reading Jesus. <laughs> Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Je Psh, Jesus. That's all I would read is Jesus. <laughs> what if he would have started a church? You want to talk about megachurches? Sure, you ain't never seen a megachurch yet. Jesus would have had a megachurch of megachurches, and he could have lived forever. He'd still, be, he'd still be in his earthly body right here. He, didn't, he wasn't even worried about fulfilling it. He didn't start his ministry till he was 30 years old. Shoot, if it was me, I would have started at three. I'd have been slaying people in the spirit from the next crib. Touch. <laughs> And he only ministered for three years. Yeah. And what you find in the ministry of Jesus is a complete lack of anxiety. Yeah. No, you notice he's not walking around going, oh, what if I don't fulfill? Oh, what if I? Think about it. What he does in that three years is he picks the 12 guys upon whose shoulders the whole history of the church is going to rest. Yeah. The whole future, the eternal destiny of billions of people is going to rest on these 12 guys. Yeah. I'd have been so worried. What if I picked the wrong guys? You picked the wrong disciple? Lights out. And he's not even worried. For, for three years, he's walking around with those guys. I would have woke him up at 5 o'clock in the morning, had him pray for two hours, then done two hours of theology, two hours of biblical interpretation. I would have, shoot, preaching class, hermeneutics, homiletics. I would have put them through Bible college, seminary. But what does Jesus do? He just says, just follow me. Where are we going? I don't know. Just keep following me. We're just walking around. Oh, this is a good place. And he sits down. Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the king. Do you know that the whole future of the church rests on these guys and you're talking about the poor in spirit? Jesus, what's your methodology? It's easy. I just do what I see the Father doing. Every day I'm just looking. See, Dad, what are you doing today? His communion with the Father, purpose, set the trajectory for his daily impulses and inclinations, nature. That is, his purpose and identity informed his nature so that now his daily impulses and inclinations, which determined the gifts that he used at any given moment, Jesus had every gift. See, in the body of Christ, we talk about a lot of nonsense. Do you have the gift of healing? Do you have the gift of prophecy? Do you have the gift of word of knowledge? Who can? No. Can I just set something straight? None of us have any of those gifts. But the Holy Spirit has all of them, and the Holy Spirit dwells in us, which means all of those gifts dwell in us. And so we're, we're, I'm wanting to possess this gift. You can't possess a gift of the Spirit. 
But you can walk in fellowship and communion with the Holy Spirit. And when you're walking in fellowship and communion with the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit can manifest any gift through you at any time. Do you realize that even what you call your natural gifts are spiritual gifts? When you live a supernatural life, even your natural things become spiritual things. You see, the definition of a spiritual gift is simply something that has been submitted to God. When you make it God's, it becomes spiritual. But when you're walking in the flesh, even your spiritual gifts are natural gifts. When you're walking in the spirit, even your natural gifts are spiritual gifts. Here's the key. So many of us are anxiously desiring for God to give us gifts that we do not have. Simultaneously rejecting the gifts that we do have. Not realizing that that is an accusation. God, you didn't give me the right gifts. You didn't give me the gifts that I want. You didn't equip me in the way I want to be equipped. And sometimes you just got to take what God's already put in your hand and just say, God, I submit this to you. This is what I got. You can use it like Moses, yeah. right? Burning bush. Moses, <laughs> Moses was, uh, he was the lone survivor of a generation. Can you imagine being five years old and you're the only living five-year-old white dude in the world? That's hard to imagine, isn't it? <laughs> Christian just turned bright red. <laughs> okay, the only five-year-old red dude in the <laughs> When Moses was five, he was the only five-year-old Jewish kid. Yeah. All the others were wiped out when he was a baby. Yeah. He was the lone survivor of a generation. His mother was hired to be his nurse. You better believe that from the time he was an infant, his mother was whispering in his ear, son, you are the lone survivor of your generation. God has a plan for your life. He has set you apart. He's called you to be the deliverer. So Moses from birth is inculcated with a sense of purpose and a sense of destiny. But Moses at 40 years of age experiences frustration. Frustration is when you set out to fulfill your God-given destiny and it all falls apart. He sees an Egyptian beating a, a Hebrew, and so he goes to rescue the Hebrew, and he kills the Egyptian and buries his body in the sand, thinking, now everybody's going to respect me. Now all the Jews who are slaves here in Egypt are going to respect me. They're going to see me as the deliverer. But they don't. The next day, he sees two Jews arguing with each other. He says, brothers, let's have unity. And they look at him, and one of them says, who made you our ruler and judge? You're going to kill me the way you killed the Egyptian yesterday? And all of a sudden, Moses realizes that his secret is told. He runs for his life, 
And for the next 40 years, he's out in the desert in obscurity. He tried to fulfill the call of God on his life, and he failed. Where's the favor of the Lord now? Now he receives the job of the shepherd, and we're going to talk about that tomorrow. But after 40 years, he's out in the desert, and he sees a bush on the side of a mountain called Mount Horeb. It's also called Mount Sinai. And he thinks it's spontaneous combustion. Any moment that bush is going to burn up and it's going to burn out, it's just, you know, a little tumbleweed. But what happens? It keeps burning. And he's like, any minute that bush is going to burn out, but it keeps burning. And after a while, he's like, man, why is that bush still burning? He says, I've got to turn aside and see why this bush is burning but not being consumed. And so he ascends the mountain, and he comes before the bush, and he gets close to the bush, and suddenly a voice comes to him from the bush. Isn't it interesting that Adam, when he was ashamed, hid behind the bush? And now God speaks to Moses from the bush. That is, God comes to your hiding place and sets it on fire. He comes to the place that you run to in shame and he sets it on fire. All of a sudden, he draws you to the bush. Moses thought he was approaching God. In actuality, God was approaching Moses. Moses, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Take off your shoes for the ground upon which you stand is holy. Moses takes off his shoes and bows with his face to the ground. Now God speaks. Listen to this. I have heard the groaning of my people in Egypt. I am concerned about them. And I have come down to rescue them. Listen, when you're walking in the spirit, you begin to recognize that your desire to make an impact in the world is absolutely meaningless because you can't. You can try, but why? Because you can't intervene. Sorry, some, that was... You can try, but why? Anyway. God says, it's my mission, Moses. It's not your mission. It's my mission. I have heard the groaning of my people in Egypt. I've come to make a difference. I've come to change. You see, the problem is when you're not walking in the spirit, you're walking in all this anxiety. I need to make a difference. I need to change, and I need to fix this, and I need to own the world, and we need to do this, and we, we should be doing it. And all of a sudden, you're overwhelmed with all this anxiety about all of the shoulds and oughts that we ought to be doing this, and we should be doing this, and I'm ashamed because I should be able to do this, but I can't do it. And how come I've tried, and we failed, and we shouldn't? We, and why are we not doing this? And how come we're not doing that? You're walking in the flesh. And now you're carrying the weight of the world on your shoulders. You need to get off the cross. Somebody else has already been there. You don't have to die for the sin of the world. Hello. God says, I've heard the groaning of my people in Egypt. Now watch this. He says, Moses, therefore you go. I've heard, therefore you go. I'm sending you. And Moses says, I don't talk so good. Notice what Moses says. I don't have the right gifts. Translation, it's not in my nature to do what you're asking me to do, God. 
I don't have the right potentialities. I don't have the right gifts. I don't have the right, I'm not even passionate about that anymore. God says, I've come to shape your passion. I've come to give you your gifts. I've come to tell you where you're gifted. Listen, when God comes to you, don't you dare tell God what you are gifted with and not gifted with. God says, who gave man his mouth? Moses says, well, how am I going to do this? And God says, what's that in your hand? Moses, nothing. No, no, no. You're holding something in your hand. What is it? And he goes, it's just a rod. It's interesting that the Bible calls it a rod. You know what it actually was? A stick. (laughs) You think, a rod. It just sounds so formal. It's just a stick. Just picked up this stick. I just picked it up over there. Helps me walk. It's just a stick. It wasn't polished or, you know. No, it's a stick. And God says, yeah, with that, you're going to smite the Egyptians. Isn't that crazy? You see that stick you're holding there in your hand? With that, you're going to smite the Egyptians. And they're going to let Israel go because of your stick. When the power of God comes on that that seemingly meaningless gift that you have, Man, I don't have anything. I'm not a prophet, apostle, pastor, to teach. I, I ain't got nothing. What I, what I can't even. I'm not. A, I'm not even very smart. Yeah. Yeah, well, what do you got? What you got? Yeah. Well, I can weave baskets. All right, I'm gonna come on your basket weaving, and with your basket weaving, you're gonna smite the nations. Because when you begin to surrender everything to God's hand, you begin to see God's hand in everything. Yeah. Whatever, listen, power is simply walking in submission to God. And whatever you submit to God becomes powerful in him. God says, with that stick, you're going to smite the nations. The question is not what you're gifted to do. The question is, which of your gifts have you surrendered to God? Because before you surrender it to God, it's still just a stick. Some of us are walking around trying to smite stuff with a stick that we have not surrendered to God. Say, this is my rod. It's a rod. And with it, I will snow. You will not. It's a stick. You look ridiculous. (laughs) You know, folks run around prophesying. Parking lot prophecies. I got a word from the Lord for you. The Lord said, today is Saturday. And they give you information that you already knew. You know them, <laughs> them words. Jesus said he loves you. <laughs> I knew that already. That's just a stick. Yeah. <laughs> Your inclinations and impulses are a cue or a clue, sorry, to the destiny that God has placed in your life. However, you must allow God to hone your inclinations and impulses. And what God does is there's always a period, before you enter into your destiny, there's always a period of years and even decades in which God puts you in a place where you can hone your inclinations excuse me, and impulses. Now, now let me tell you something. 
Some of you here have inclinations and impulses that you haven't seen God move on yet. And you want to give it up, but you can't give it up because there's something in you that's like, but I really think that this is, this is supposed to be God. Some of you are wrong. It's not God, and it never will be God. Some of you are right, and you got to keep pushing in that, that direction because it is God. How do you know which category you're in? Keep pushing, and God will show you. Ask him every day to show you. What we want to do is we want to say, God, can you just tell me ahead of time? And God says no, because here's the key. Even if you're in the category where it's not God and you keep pushing in that direction, God's going to use that for something. He uses everything. Romans 8, 28. And we know that God, that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who are the called according to his purpose. That is, if you truly desire to honor God, and you have an inclination in your heart that you believe to be born of the Spirit of God that flows out of your intimacy with Him, you keep pressing in that direction. You keep reaching in that direction. And if you're reaching in the wrong direction, God's going to redirect you. The problem is we keep trying to redirect ourselves. We keep trying to be our own redeemers, and we keep trying to figure stuff out on our own. The key is to seek greater levels of spirit fullness each and every day. You know, this is a powerful key for productivity. You know what I started doing? I started spending the mornings in prayer. And I don't leave my time of prayer until God tells me what to do for the day. So how do I know what to work on? And this is the key. You know what the hardest thing is? My inclination is to work on the thing that's the most pressing today. You know what I found? When I spend time and I come to this place of intimacy with God, God gives me a new inclination. And sometimes... It doesn't even remotely resemble yeah. what's pressing on my calendar right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I found that if I submit to God and I move in the direction God is moving me, it always works out. Yeah. And there's actually always time to complete the thing that is pressing on my schedule as well. Because yeah. God cares about that too. Yeah. You find that there's always tension between your purpose and your mission. Yeah. I heard somebody say earlier today, do I study for the test or do I worship the night away? I feel that all the time. Am I supposed to just worship all night? Or do I study for the test? And the answer to that question is obey God tonight. Because when it's time to study, if you're walking in the Spirit, the Holy Spirit will say, study. And if the Holy Spirit never says study and you fail the test, that wasn't God. Saul. So Saul leaves the presence of Samuel and he goes on the journey as Samuel describes it and he comes down the hill and the, the company of prophets comes down the hill and he comes into this prophetic meeting and the Holy Spirit comes on him and he begins to prophesy too. And Saul becomes another man. And what happens is he goes back home and he's home and he's plowing with his oxen. He's got a yoke of oxen and he's plowing a field. And some people come running into his vicinity and they're weeping and they're crying. And he says, what are you crying about? And they said, the Amalekites have come in and they're destroying the land. And the scripture said, the spirit of the Lord came on Saul and he began to burn with anger, which is not Saul's nature. 
Saul's nature is to cower and hide, but when the Holy Spirit comes upon him, he burns with anger. All of a sudden, Saul goes gangster, and people are like, Saul is a gangster? I thought he was a punk. He burns with anger, draws his sword, and cuts his oxen to pieces. And people are like, dang, what the heck is that all about? He says, bring me 12 boxes. They bring him 12 boxes. He puts a big hunk of oxen meat into each box and says, deliver one to every tribe and tell them if you don't show up on the battlefield tomorrow with Saul, this is what I'm going to come do to your oxen. And the next morning, there was an army like Israel had not seen (laughs) in millennia, maybe had never seen before. And Saul is at the front of the army. And they go up and they deliver the city from the Amalekites. And they kill every, I mean, it was like, it was like, dang, Saul went gangster. How'd you know to do that, Saul? How'd you know, where'd you get that from, Saul? Oh, man, after the fact, you look back and go, whoa, how did I know to do that? Because when you're walking in your purpose and you discover your identity, the next step is a new nature begins to take hold on the inside of you. And suddenly your impulses and inclinations are now driven by the Spirit. And your impulses and inclinations driven by the Spirit push you to do things that you never would have done, to reach for things that you never would have reached for to try things that you never would have tried. Here's the key. You gotta be willing to reach, but you also have to be able to tolerate failure. Because I guarantee you, you're not gonna succeed. In the beginning, you're not gonna succeed most of the time. And that is the great problem in the body of Christ. This is why 99% of believers sit in the pew and never fulfill their destiny because we are not willing to tolerate failure. If the average baby thought the way the average believer thought, nobody would ever learn to walk. We would have fallen down one time and said, oh, I don't have the gift of walking. God must not have called me to walk. Because if God called me to walk, I would just get up and run. And then if you got, got up again and fell down a second time, now you know God hasn't called you. And if it doesn't work the third time, we're crawling for the rest of our lives. <laughs> you ever heard of John Wimber? God gave him this inclination, this impulse to pray for the sick. And God spoke to him and said, I want you to pray for the sick in every, sun, every single Sunday service. And I want you to preach on healing. He started preaching on healing. And then he'd give an altar call and pray for the sick. That first Sunday, he thought, this is going to be crazy powerful. This is going to be mad revival. Everybody's going to get healed. The sick are going to be healed everywhere. And guess how many people got healed? Zero. <laughs> and he went home and said, God, what happened? And God said, do it again next Sunday. And he went back next Sunday to do it again. And guess what happened? Nobody got healed. And this went on for months. Yeah. Six months of every single Sunday, nobody getting healed, and him crying out to God all week, please don't make me preach on healing again. I'm looking so stupid here. And God says, preach on healing again. And six months later, 
he got a call to visit a member of his church who was sick with a bad flu, and he went to her house, he prayed for her, and then immediately started into a theological explanation of why people don't get healed. And guess what happened? She got up and was healed. And he was so shocked he didn't believe it. And after that, all of a sudden, mad revival broke out in his church, and people started coming from all over the world to get healed, and he started traveling all over the world and holding healing revivals. Do you know why God sent such a powerful healing revival through him? Because he didn't stop. He was not deterred by failure. He did not allow frustration to stop him in his tracks. He did not allow the fact that he fell on his face again and again. Why? Because he was moved by the Spirit of God. And there was something on the inside of him. You know, for me, the, for me, the equivalent of that is prophecy. There's, some, there's an impulse on, I just want to, it's just, I got to declare it. I'm just going to declare it. Do you know how much trouble I've gotten declaring stuff that didn't come to pass? But there's just this thing in me. If I hear that you're trying to have a child, I'm going to declare that within one year, you're going to hold a child. That thing on the inside of me is so strong. I'm like, within one year, you will hold a child. I feel it. Oh, I feel it so strong. I command your womb to open. I, I just had this inclination and impulse to command stuff to happen. It's supposed to happen when I command it. It's supposed to happen when I declare it. Do you know how many people I've commanded to live and they died? You know how many times I've commanded sickness to leave and I got sick? Now, you do have to exercise wisdom. One thing I had to learn is that not all of my inclinations and impulses are from the Holy Spirit. And so I have to have a series of checks and balances. Notice you haven't heard me commanding stuff and declaring stuff all the time. If I declared, <laughs> if I declared everything that I want to declare and if I commanded everything that I wanted to command, I would have lost my credibility in ministry a long time ago. I've learned that I have to filter my inclinations because a lot of them are not from God. And I've learned that I have to discern at times, this one's from God, this one's not. And guess what? Many times I've spoken and declared it and it's happened. Sometimes even to the date. It's funny, in, in July, on July 13th, I was in prayer and the Lord brought this pastor and his family to me in, in prayer and the Lord gave me a word for them. And I sent them this word. I said, I really feel like the Lord's getting ready to do this in your life. And I sent him the word on July 13th. He just emailed me yesterday. He said, you won't believe it. After we got that word, this happened, this happened, this. And he God did exactly what I spoke. And it happened in the preceding three or four months. And he goes, so I wanna, my, my wife and I want to send you and your wife on a, on a seven-day, uh, all-expense-paid vacation to uh, any of these. I was like, dang. Okay, yeah, we're going. So. We're going to have another seven-day sabbatical at some time between now and the end of the year. <laughs> What's the point I'm making? You gotta, you've got to make a decision to press deeper into the direction of your purpose and identity so that you can experience the new nature and once again, you experience the new nature not by pressing for the new nature. Yeah. It is the natural result, the natural outgrowth yeah. of your intimacy with God. Yeah, that's it. Naturally. That's it. Yeah. I can't tell you how many times I've seen people come to faith in Jesus Christ. Why? Because I was just walking with God and all of a sudden I hear him say, talk to that person. Yeah. 
Is it because I'm a great evangelist and I know how to talk to people? No, I know who to talk to and when to talk to them. You got to know how as well. But it's not, what we want is the indiscriminate ability to do things whenever we want. And that's not how it works. It's about walking in the spirit and walking in fellowship with God, with God and then allowing him to hone and develop the unique constellation of gifts, passions, inclinations, and impulses that are born of the spirit of God that will propel you towards your destiny. And tomorrow morning, we're going to talk about your mission, which is what you're supposed to do. And if you know your purpose, why you are, your identity, who you are, your nature, what you are, and your mission, what you're supposed to do, now you live a life that is filled with clarity, with fulfillment, with satisfaction, with joy, and with peace. Amen? Amen. Pastor Sonny. <laughs> Amen. If I could have the worship team come up. As our worship team comes up, we just, what's in your hand? Come on, just all of you, just open your hands like this. What's in your hand? Your nature isn't about you figuring out what your gifts are. Just seeing what's in your hand. Who knows Guillermo Perez? Who started Sliver, right, in Berkeley? He has now three, right, locations, Sliver and Guac. How many? One or two locations? One. Used to be two. Back in 2014, was it last time we had, when was the last time we had this? 2012. Guillermo was a pizza man. High school dropout. And he did not own that pizza place. He was just a pizza man. He came to Abba Conference. And during nature time, he's like, what's in my hand? What's my passion? What's my gift? What can I do? He just simply looked at what was in his hand. And this is what he said. God, I know how to make pizza. What's in my hand is the ability to make good, delicious pizza. And then he realized, you know what else is in my hand? It's my passion to do something about sex slaves, human trafficking. Pizza, human trafficking, nothing in common. And you know what he did? He just surrendered what was in his hand. Pizza making, passion for human trafficking. And he started to write it down and pray. And many years later, he has three different locations of sliver. And he gives the percentage every month to rescue slaves to rescue slaves what's in your hand I want you to look at yourself what can you do you don't even have to worry you don't have to worry about oh can I prophesy can I sing can I preach don't worry about that what's in your hand what can you do now I remember even when I was in seminary when you know people preached about spiritual gifts you know what I said God I have none I was like that's not fair my friend Benjamin, he could preach, he could prophesy, he could sing, he could play the piano. 
me. I can't speak. I can't sing. I can't play any instruments. God, I, I, I don't have any gifts. But you know what God said? What's in your hand? And if I told you what I told him, you'll laugh. Because first thing I saw in me wasn't something good. You know what I saw? I saw, well, I always live in fear. <laughs> Even when I, when I was young, I would walk home from school and certain areas I would just run and I would be so scared. Public bathrooms, I would just run out afterwards. I would hold it as long as I can. Every time I see bugs, I scream. You see your pastor and you, you hear me going all over the world and you think, wow, God just gifted you. I'm afraid of bugs. God, I have fear. Ever since I was a young kid, I always lived with fear. And this fear keeps me from trying things that I want to try. You know what I surrender? It wasn't something good. It was bad. It was fear. Fear. And then the other hand, I said, God, I can't preach. I can't sing. But you know what I do have? I have willingness. I have a yes. That even though I don't know what I could do if you tell me to go, I'll go. I have fear. I have my yes. I don't know what you could do with it, but this is all I see. So I surrender. And you know what? He used it. Every fear I lived with, every, every time he said go, I would go. And every time I took that step, I had to overcome my fear of bugs. My first mission trip to Africa, you don't understand how supernaturally bugs came after me. Wherever I went, I saw crazy looking bugs with antenna eyes and just following me wherever I went. Every meal they gave me, there was a bug. When in the morning when I tried to pray cockroaches from out of nowhere come at me and every time I said yes when he said go I had to overcome that fear and in overcoming that fear I received another level of faith he said go I can't preach but I will go and I would overcome my fear of public speaking Even something that tormented me all my life, when I surrender, hmm? Hmm? the fear of bugs, overcoming my fear of bugs. You know what I do now? I set people free that are demonized. I was never this bold, powerful missionary. I was just a girl that was afraid of bugs that surrender that to God. So tonight, every eye closed, just open your hands like this in front of you, over your lap. Come on. Your Lord, your God, is not asking you to do something 
that you're afraid of. Don't worry, he's not going to ask you to sell everything and move to Africa. <laughs> you know what he's saying right now? Identify what's in your hands. I'm going to give you about a minute or write songs I have a voice guys come on just just between you and the Lord I want you to place before him in your hand here's my stick but what can you do with this stick don't worry about it don't worry about it just identify what you have in your hands and surrender it. If God can use this girl who has been Rejected, abandoned, full of fear to travel the world, to tell people about the love of God. Understanding, if you would just surrender, as worship lead, worship team leads us into worship. This is what I want us to do. There's going to be some surrendering time, and as you surrender. I believe supernaturally God is going to activate his sons and daughters what is so natural just a stick God's going to anoint it and he's gonna use it for his glory so as the worship team leads if you're ready to surrender what's in your hands I want you to stand and I want you to lift it up. <laughs> 